Hello, people of podcast land. Welcome back to Modern Wisdom. My guest today is Richard Shotton. He's a behavioral science expert and the founder of Astro 10. Behavioral science is one of those really interesting... That's the end of my Pomodoro. I'm going to keep going. Thank you. Be focused, pro. Behavioral science is one of those fascinating areas that I absolutely love to talk about. All of us are completely at the mercy of our own biases on a daily basis, so learning about them, even if you can't stop them from happening, is just a hilarious insight into the way that our minds work. So, today, expect to learn. What is the reason that restaurants don't put pound signs in front of their prices? Why do marketing campaigns with huge flaws end up winning the market over? How does increasing wait times on comparison sites actually improve customer buy-in? And why do budget airlines reduce quality of experience to improve trust? Also, you're going to get to find out what the word nine-enders means in a marketing sense. That's a real a real term, nine-enders. This episode is fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Richard, you're a legend and a gentleman. Thank you so much for coming on. Rory Sutherland's uh, Psychology in the World of Advertising, episode 49, is a perfect complement to this if you enjoy it. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But for now please welcome the wise and wonderful Mr. Richard Shotton. I am joined by Richard Shotton, founder of Astro 10 and author of The Choice Factory. Richard, welcome to the show. Hi, good to meet you, Chris. Fantastic to have you on. Um, just before we started, you told me that Astro 10, your company, is actually the wrong name for itself. Can you can you explain what's happened there? It, it is. It is the wrong name. Uh, so lo- I set it up last August. And I was on a holiday and it was getting to the stage where I just needed a name. And I thought, you know, Richard Shotton Consulting would just be a bit naff. So I was uh, flicking through a pretty much a textbook on psychology experiments, and I came across this experiment uh, back in the 60s, which was all about um, the the pernicious effects of authority. And in the in the experiment, what the the psychologist did was ring up hospitals, uh, said to nurses, "Quick, quick, you've got to go and find patient Jones and give them 100 milligrams of Astro 10." And they shouldn't have accepted the order over the phone. And when they got to the medicine cabinet, there was the fake medicine, Astro 10. And it said in big letters, 
don't give anyone more than 10 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Yet despite these two facts, 95% of the nurses try to administer the fake drug. Did someone step in and go, what are you doing? No, 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 no. Yeah, I'm guessing there was a, there was someone, you know, hiding in a cupboard or something. I don't, I don't know. But yeah, that, that part. Uh, but the, so I thought, yeah, this is brilliant. Um, relevant name for the company. It's part of a psychology experiment. And I also kind of liked the anti-authoritarian vibe that, you know, it was one of the reasons for setting them up on my own. So I registered the name, got the website, uh, registered at company's house, did all that stuff. And then about a month or two later, I thought, well, if I'm going to call myself Astro 10, I should probably read the original paper. Uh, and I went and found this paper. And as I was halfway through, I suddenly realized to my horror that the textbook had had a typo. So the, the, the drug in the real experiment back in the 60s was not Astro 10. It was Astro Gen. So my company is it is a mistake i mean your company's a typo <laughs> yeah my company's a typo but i thought after that time one i couldn't be bothered to re uh get another website and yeah i kind of i kind of like the fact that you've a, got a typo behind it, it. Yeah, yeah which yeah. is like again it's human behavior right <laughs> well the, the, yes one of the, i mean my favorite one of my favorite biases uh is this idea of you heard of one called the pratfall effect nope lay it so on the, us Ah, so the pratfall effect um, is an experiment back in the, done by Elliot, Elliot Aronson, who's this professor at Harvard uh, and he, in the 1960s. And in 1966, he runs his classic experiment where he gets a colleague of his to take part in a quiz. He has given his colleague all the answers. So the guy does amazingly well, gets 92% of the questions right, wins the quiz by miles, looks like a genius. But then as the quiz is finishing, the guy makes what an American would call a pratfall, a small blunder. As he's standing up, he spills a cup of coffee down himself. So Aronson's recorded this entire incident, great quiz performance, and then the blunder. He plays it to people, but he edits the, uh, the clip. So there are two versions. One has everything, and the other version edits out the mistake. And when he asks listeners uh, how appealing they find the contestant, the contestant is seen as significantly more appealing if people have heard the mistake as well as the amazing performance. And Aronson calls this the, the pratfall effect, this idea that we prefer people or relevantly for advertisers, products who exhibit a flaw. And I, and I love it because I think, one, it runs very counter to what people uh, assume and then secondly if you look at the greatest addict ads through history it's interesting quite how many of them have had this insight at their very heart what like so um you go all the way back to probably the, the, the earliest was 1959 vw now, the classic campaign ad age said ad age said was the greatest campaign of the 20th century uh, where they had flaws at the very heart ugly is only skin deep um you've got more uh, moving more recent well a little bit more recently was Avis. We're number two, so we try harder. Essentially, admitting- <laughs> uh, Guinness admitting they're slow. Good things come to those who wait. Stella reassuringly expensive. Uh, and more recently, K- you know, KFC tweeting that their fries are damn awful. The fri- uh, our fries yeah, suck. Yeah, yeah. You told us they suck. So give us yeah. give us six months. We'll come back with a better recipe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so it's a. And I think what those advertisers have realised is that. Probably the biggest hurdle you have as an advertiser, well, probably the biggest hurdle is being noticed. 
Um, and actually, the pratfall effect's good for that because if everyone else is bragging, if you are distinctive, you're much more likely to be noticed. And there's lots of evidence about that. There's a wonderful experiment uh, called the von Restorff effect, which which proves that. Uh, so it, it gets you noticed. The next biggest hurdle as an advertiser is believability. You know, most people assume advertisers, well, they, you know, the cynics assume they lie, which is not true. But it, most people assume that advertisers are at least putting a, a positive spin on the truth. Mm-hmm. So the amazing thing with the pratfall effect is if you uh, admit a flaw, you've tangibly demonstrated your honesty, and then all your other claims become that much more believable. Mm. And then I think the final thing it does, which is excellent, is those brilliant advertisers don't admit a flaw randomly. They they go to great lengths to, to think, well, what's our core strength? And then they think about a flaw that uh, is the mirror image of that strength. Because in many cultures, flaws and strengths are two sides of the, work, the same coin. You know, so Stella say they're expensive. But that's because they know people assume that expensive things are better quality. Or VW go out and say, yes, we're ugly. But then they follow up by saying, well, that's because we don't care about aesthetic fripperies. We care about engineering excellence. So it's this fascinating approach. Yet I find it so interesting because even though it's got all this evidence, and there's so much more than just the Aronson experiment, advertisers very, very rarely use it. You know, if you pick up, if you watch a... um, few hours of tv tonight you'll see you probably won't see a single advertiser admitting a weakness Mm. that's all very well and good saying the best ones use it but they are in the they are in the minority is it a way to humanize brands i think think that's that's one of the other things that it does as you say if if you admit a weakness then you i think are changing that kind of power Mm. dynamics yeah definitely well i mean looking at um some of the biggest memes and things that come out of TV, apart from the fact that it's funny moments, but if you look at the stuff that comes off Love Island or um, mm. it's like dancing on ice, celebrity dancing on ice and stuff like that, it's always someone pulling an awkward face or tripping up a step or yeah, yeah, doing yeah. something like that. Like no one ever loves the person who's flawless because I don't think that they're able to relate and I think that that's the same with the businesses as well. And obviously, you don't want Boeing. Well, this is probably quite timely, like given how many issues they've had recently with that three five seven Max or whatever it's called. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't want Boeing to be admitting like our planes aren't that safe, but they'll get you there fast. Like, yes. no, 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 no. <laughs> don't don't talk about that weakness, Mister Boeing. Like, let's not bring that one up. Talk about the fact that. That Harley Davidson one that you posted on your Twitter the other day. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Amazing. So there's a Harley Davidson advert, guy on a bike uh, on big open road, and it says at the bottom, somewhere 35,000 <laughs> feet in the air, a man is trying to open a small packet of peanuts. Yeah. He's like, fucking genius. Like, absolute genius. Um, but yeah, you, you're totally right. Humanizing yeah. the brands and, and being strategic about it. Yes, yeah. So I think, you, I think you're spot on with that. And two things, you say humanizing the brand and it, Aronson, or it may have been one of the follow-up experiments, talks about if someone seems perfect, then people want see them as a threat and want to knock them down mm. uh, a peg or two. If someone's flawed, then you know they're not they're not a threat, and you can um, uh, you're much more likely to warm to them. Yeah. But the other part you mentioned, I think you're spot on. Of you, 
don't just pick a flaw randomly. You know, Stella didn't say it tasted awful. As you say, you know, VW <laughs> wouldn't does. say it. <laughs> yeah. VW uh, didn't say that we're lying about our emissions, which they were. At the, yeah, at the, uh, <laughs> Strategically pick your weaknesses. Yes, yeah. And you don't have to invent one. You know, there are all of those things, like Guinness, I'm sure we're told in research group after research group how annoying it was that people had to wait for them. Mm-hmm. But rather than just brush that under the carpet, as most brands would do, you know, they thought, well, people know this, it's true, might as well try and get some how mileage we, out of it. Yeah, mm. how can we play off the back of it? And definitely using some of those things is an indicator of quality. That's what's happening, isn't it? It's price is an indicator of quality. The wait time is an indicator of quality. It's what is a characteristic people want and how can we make our weakness be some sort of a signal that that is an important part of it. I was talking about Guinness. I was recently in America and I was at the United States National Whitewater Rafting Center, which is like anyone who's ever worn Patagonia like that's where they will, that's, that's their heaven. Yeah. That's where they die and go to. It's like mountain biking and hill climbing and white water rafting and all this stuff. And at this, the, they don't have a bar that serves alcohol, but they have a bar which has numerous cold brew coffees on tap. And I was like, oh, God, I'm going <laughs> to take this. And sure enough, they have one which um, takes the same time as Guinness to pour and that's its advertising strategy. Oh, it comes okay. Out. It's yeah, like yeah. a pint of, just under a pint of cold brew coffee but it settles the same way. It gets poured the same way. They have to tilt the cup, the cup in the same way. They serve yeah. it with the logo turned towards uh, you and okay. push it across. I was like, See, this is cool. That is that is fascinating because um, I'm not quite linked the two, but there is another bias called the IKEA effect by Dan Ariely and Norton. Um, and what they talk about is generally – removing friction making things easier is a massively underrated um approach for marketers and people who want behavior change so that however they they argue there are rare occasions when you should try and make things harder Mm. and at the beginning of the paper they talk about a famous story from general mills and betty crocker i don't know if you've heard about this one so it's it's back in the, the, the 1950s you've got more um uh, households where both men and women are working so there's less time to cook cakes for the for kids so the general mills think well you know let, how do we tap into this uh changing behavior well let's make a super simple cake mix a cake mix all you have to do tear the top of the packet open pour it in a tin add some water chuck it in the oven mm. and you've got your lovely cake half an hour later they launch this and despite it seemingly being absolutely spot on for the era, cake sales are awful. They then ponder why this is for a while, and they begin to think, well, we've made this too easy. Yeah, because a cake isn't just about providing calories for your family, it's about showing your love. Yep. And if you've made something really, really easy, it doesn't show love, because you know part of that is... going through a bit of a rigmarole Mm. so they then follow up with a new cake mix in which they artificially make the cake mix more complicated they make it harder to bake so now you've got still got your cake mix in your packet still tear it open you still pour it in the tin this time you have to crack an egg into it (laughs) and now by making it harder once they've done that that's when the cake uh, mix sales start to take off cost signaling yeah i think well 
maybe the cost is time there. I mean, the, the Norton and Ariely call it the IKEA effect that the more effort we put into something, the more we appreciate it. Mm-hmm. And I think there's an element of that in in your cold brew coffee story. Um, and I've heard I've heard a few of them actually. Someone else told me, and so this would be interesting if any listeners know if this is um, this is true or not. But someone said to me. And it's been two separate web designers, so reasonable amount of trust here. They said, look, you know when you go on those uh, travel comparison sites, mm-hmm. they said, aren't you suspicious about the amount of time it takes for them to search the sites? They said, look, they could do that much quicker, but they just add this second or two of friction in to make the search for those uh, hotels or airplanes uh, feels like it's been far more authoritative, far yeah. more comprehensive. This is how hard we've got to scrape the data to get you a deal. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I'm not going. I'm going to make sure that I keep this sufficiently anonymous that it won't rumble him. I know a person yeah. who knows a person, and this person yeah. is currently working in a city doing some financial stuff. Yeah. As a part of this thing, he provides spreadsheets, very advanced spreadsheets with V lookups and all sorts of other things to do projections and forecasting yeah. that take into account a lot of very complicated variables. And what he's added into this spreadsheet is a macro that runs a loading bar. Now, yeah. you'll never know because I've managed to keep him sufficiently anonymous. Yeah. But if you are the person that's being served this Excel sheet, let me tell you that that loading bar is always three and a half seconds long, no matter how much data goes through, because yeah, yeah. it's just, that's it, his, that's it's just an animation. Simple, yeah. It's just an animation that yeah. he thought, well, if I had this in, it looks like I'm really fucking doing some work, like yeah, crunching yeah. the numbers behind here. Yeah. Meanwhile, his computer's like having a tab. It's out the back. Yeah. This process is out the back, just having a cigarette yeah. going, ah, oh, we fucking finished three and a half minutes ago, three and a half seconds ago. Um, yeah, that, you're totally right. I think, um, Rory Sutherland talks about, um, the difference between pick your own strawberries and cheap strawberries. Ooh, okay, go on. Yeah. So you can imagine the same uh, yeah. thing that, uh, if price is an indicator of quality, but if price is offset with some cost that uh, you yeah. have to incur yeah, in yeah. the creation of the product, you yeah. can sell strawberries for half the price of everybody else's strawberries if no one is suspicious about the fact, hang on, why yes. the fuck are these strawberries so cheap? So like, oh, yeah, well, you've yeah, got, yeah. you got to go pick them yourself. The same yes. as with Ikea. Why Why is why is Ikea furniture so cheap? Oh, I don't need to worry about the quality. It's because yeah. I've got to put it together myself. That's why I've got yes. to do it. I think you're absolutely right there. And if there is one category of brands that should always be thinking about using the pratfall effect, I think it is low cost brands because if they do nothing, people will assume their, yeah, their products are shit. Seen it again and again, working with, uh, brands that have maybe had a revolutionary way of bringing their products to market. They've done something really clever, which means they're much cheaper and then they'll get their tracking back and that, and off they often come back with very low quality scores because people work to rule of thumb as you say if it's cheap it must be shit and i think it was i'm sure well, it was rory who had this brilliant explanation for the success of budget airlines you know his argument is look what they had to do when they launched because they were such a strange thing you know one day you were flying across europe for 100 quid and now it only costs a fiver mm. they had to go out and say their service was awful if they hadn't people would assume the cost savings might have been at something like um, their safety yeah or secondhand uh, aeroflot jets yeah uh, so they'd have never stepped foot in them you go out and say well actually our service is awful and you know think back to michael o'leary about how much he kind of pushed that that message 
if you do that, people think, well, that's a fair enough trade-off, and they're happy to, to set foot on the planes. Yeah. Yes, I think you're right. If you, if you ever have a low-cost product, you've got to be thinking about, well, how can we explain this price to people? And if we can't try and explain it with a bit of a humble brag, people assume that's too good to be true. Need to go and find an inconsequential weakness. Yeah. You know, like TK Maxx admit that their stores are shambolic. Oh, my God. It but is better, chaos. Yeah. Better to admit that than people go away thinking it's the quality of the product that's awful. Yeah. I mean, TK Maxx, anybody, mm. I have some friends who shop in TK Maxx. And it is, to me, it is what, if an anxiety attack manifested itself <laughs> as a store, yeah. that's what TK Maxx yeah. would be. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no logic to it. You've got the scented candles next to the flip flops and beachwear. <laughs> yeah. Are you like, who on earth is that? It's like a drunk child designed this <laughs> yeah, store. Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, I think they're, I don't know if they're still running, but certainly they had a, a wave of advertising about six months ago, which said something along the lines of the small prices you pay for the small prices you pay. Ah, uh, that's very clever. Like, yeah. It might be a scented candle next to a flip flop, but if you put that bit of effort in, you'll unearth, you'll unearth a bargain. So when mm. when someone works in an ad agency, right, and they're coming up with the marketing communications for this, that small prices you pay for the small prices you pay, for instance, as a tagline, has probably has probably come by one person. Perhaps it's not multiple people that have come up with small prices you pay. It'll just be some guy. Because I've done advertising for a long time for my own stuff, the idea of being the guy that comes up with that, no matter whether it makes any difference to my paycheck, gives me such a figurative stiffy. Like to think <laughs> I could be the guy that did the small prices you pay for the small prices you pay. You're like, fuck, yes, yes, that's, that's, my, that's my month made. Like, because you just come up with this awesome, awesome tagline. Do you get that sense sometimes when you kind of, you finally hit upon the right brand message the right trigger the right caption the right everything and it just comes together like that so so my speciality is slightly different mine is around well how you apply uh behavioral science to marketing ah, there's, de- there's definitely a link but no i'm sure i'm sure that's copyright yeah that's absolutely the case. yeah if i if i tried to to write that line it would have been about a paragraph long with <laughs> yeah, six spelling mistakes in yeah. yeah so what else have you seen recently has anything else caught your eye recently that you've been looking at in terms of advertising um, I mean, the, I mean, the interest, the big interest for me is I think that advertising is undergoing a bit of a change at the moment. And this might be wishful thinking, but there was such um, euphoria a few years ago about how the rise of data and the opportunities of targeting was going to change advertising that I think um, – there was so much overclaim. I think brands got very excited, and then a lot of those benefits didn't materialise. What I think we're now seeing is an as a is the kind of pendulum swinging back from a fascination with technology, and it's not going to disappear completely, of course not, but swinging more towards some of those eternal truths of uh, that psychology identifies. So I, I, I think that's that to me is a, uh, an, an exciting area at the moment that more and more advertisers thinking well how can we unearth uh insights into our audience by harnessing this field of psychology behavioral science yeah rory said on the podcast that mm. i did with him uh silicon valley sees everything as an optimization oh. problem so well that, that, that's sorry i thought you were gonna get sorry because what i think rory's 
brilliant often at talking about is sometimes when you talk about Silicon Valley or, 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 or big tech, is that their success is often attributed solely to their technological brilliance. But often, and I don't know if he covered it because I know you did a great podcast with him. And I can't remember whether you, you covered this or not, but often their success has some quite clever psychological insights to their heart as well. So Uber, for example, of course, you know, the functionality behind that, the, you know, it, it is amazing. But there are some really clever psychological points there as well that there is research and i can't remember the the name of the psychologist but there's quite a lot of research that shows that um specific weights as in i know i've got to wait five minutes is much less painful than an unspecified weight that ends up being five minutes okay it's one of the great things that disney do they when you get to that 20 minutes from this point yes exactly so people can Quit worrying about whether they're going to get to the front or not. And they could do something else for 20 minutes and have a chat. <laughs> and then so it removes the pain. So they were brilliant on that. But the other bit that I think they're amazing at, and I think this is key to their success, <laughs> is the means of payment. Now, there is lots of evidence that the, the more distance you put between someone getting your product and them handing over cash, the cheaper it feels. So, you know, when you go to a casino, they don't expect you to be putting down £10 notes on the table. They get you to turn that cash into chips. Mm. So people become less price sensitive. When people have credit cards, they become less price sensitive than cash. I'm going to guess that'll be when when you're abroad as well and you're using just plastic. This is, everyone makes the same joke. It looks like plastic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's fucking not, mate. It's worth just as much as your money. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're not quite sure on the uh, conversion rate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've never seen any studies on that, but I bet bet you're right. Uh, The one I've done, which was, it might have been the first ever experiment I ran with uh, a lovely researcher called Claire Linford. And it was about contactless payment. So we waited until people came out from uh, coffee shops, mini marts, little delis. And then we stopped and said, can you answer three questions? And we said, how much have you paid? Can we see your receipt? And no, sorry, sorry. How much have you paid? What was your means of payment? And then can we see your receipt? Mm-hmm. And so we compared what they thought they'd paid with their receipt was what they'd actually paid. Uh-huh. And then we cut the data by means of payment. So people pay with cash, three quarters-ish, I think, uh, knew exactly what they paid. Mm. Those who don't overestimated their spend by about, I think it was about 10%. Mm. Credit cards, two-thirds knew exactly what they'd spent. And when they didn't, they were likely to underestimate as overestimate. Contactless, less than half could remember. And they invariably underestimated their spend. So you had this swing of about 15% in memory of spend between cash, mm. overestimating, contactless, underestimating. Mm. So that to me, you know, in Uber, I would say is more extreme than even contactless. People treat it as free because there is, is so little friction. There's so little um, pain of payment. The people treat it like, as you say, monopoly. It's like monopoly money. Buy it now, now on Amazon. Yeah, yeah. Buy, yeah. Oh, that, the, that, uh, one, one click, one click yeah. ordering, sorry. Um, it's the yeah. fact that you can swipe to the right. All you need to do is press a button on Amazon, swipe to the right, and then two goose down pillows arrive in your house the next day. You're yeah. like, oh my God, this is like the year 3000 shit. Like- yes. 
there's even studies i mean it goes as far as um I think it, yes, it's Sybil Yang. Sybil Yang did a study on restaurant menus where she showed if you take off the, it would be, well, she's American, so it would be dollar signs. If you take off the dollar signs, people become 8% less price sensitive. You know, it can be tiny, tiny wow. uh, tweaks that will affect that degree of price sensitivity. And price sensitivity is hugely important to brands. Because you know, if you're operating, and hopefully I'm getting my maths right here, but if you're operating at a 20% margin, Getting an extra 1% on the price is worth you know, 5% extra in terms of, of sales. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if you are a restaurant owner, actually, if you're going out for dinner tonight, have a look at the menu, see if there is or is not a pound sign on that. And that will tell you how well versed the restaurant owner is yeah. in behavioral economics and behavioral science. And then well, give us a tweet and tell us, because I want to find out. Although maybe in the, because it's fascinating in the looking far from some of these brands there is often a question well were they applying behavioral science like i think in the menu case a lot of it is um maybe some people originally did it because they'd read about this sybil yang experimentation mm. but it looks cleaner as well and i wonder if other people just copied it oh that looks quite pretty nice. it looks a bit smarter mm. so it's, it's, it's hard to know one has someone applied it because of their knowledge of behavioral science two it might be they've never studied the subject matter but they are keen students of human nature. Mm. Like going back to the Prattfall effect, Elliot Aronson did that study in 1966. In 1959, it was seven years earlier that Bill Birnbach, you know, one of the great advertising creatives, that's when uh, he had run that VW campaign that admitted the flaws. Mm. Now he, he came out with a phrase, a small admission gains a large acceptance. You know, before the academics had actually done the studying. Mm. So sometimes I think people are getting these ideas, you know, if they're working day in, day out with uh, customers, you know, if then they're watching how people behave, then I think they pick them up through, you know, osmosis rather than academic study. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you are right. There's this trickle down effect of that. We find that in the industry I work in, which is nightlife promotion. Ah, You only have a good idea for about a month because after a month, if it's that good of an idea, it's just been emancipated by everybody else. And, yeah. and you're like, oh, that was, <laughs> that was good until everyone else found out. And because it, the, the unique thing about the uh, nightlife industry is no, no one's protecting their intellectual property. No one's got contracts in place. It's the most, I s actually believe it's the most Wild West industry, probably outside yeah, of yeah. the drug trade, that's still, yeah. that's still allowed to exist because no one, everything is up for grabs. All yeah. the time, from night names to taglines to intellectual property to staff to events to everything. Everything's up for grabs. And yeah. it's a, a ruthlessly interesting uh, sort of experiment to, to see what happens when people try and hold on to ideas that they've come up with. Yes. Um, for nightlife, because I didn't know that was your, uh, your, your area, um, maybe the the bias that's most regularly applied uh, by nightclubs is the famous kind of attempts at building social proof. Mm -hmm. You know, build up, so social proof, this idea of we don't make our decisions fully individually. We look around to what others are doing and things that are popular become more popular still. So the classic nightclub trick of that was always, you know, 
don't let people in straight away build up the queue outside so it feels like it's uh appealing you're giving away uh, all of our secrets here right? <laughs> yeah well that's, 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 that's people are onto yeah uh, but that, that's i think that is a fascinating idea because it's one of the most proven uh biases in social psychology um Cialdini's show link with towel reuse Christakis with smoking uh HMRC with tax repayment rates Fang with um restaurant menus again and again the um if you tell people what the popular course of behavior is it becomes more popular still but why I think it's really interesting is that a lot of advertisers are very literal in their interpretation of that insight you know, so you go out and you see a uh, beer brand saying they're Britain's most popular or, you know, Tunnock's chocolate bar selling five million a week mm. or Oracle that 97% of CEOs use them. And I think that's all very well and good. But what marketers should aspire to is not seeing the behavioral science experiments as the end point. I think what they should aspire to is um, thinking of them just as stimulus for good ideas. And then if they apply their strengths of creative thinking, that's when the best ideas happen. So seeing that you've got your white earbuds on, that's probably my, the white earbuds are probably my favourite example of a brand taking social proof and using it laterally. Mm. Think back to when iPod launched, what, 2001-ish. When they launched... They were not the market leader. You know, lots of other brands had got out there first. There's no way they could honestly go out and say, uh, you know, we're the most popular brand bias. Mm. But the other brands made a error of uh, not being very visible. Mm. So if you were so- when people had Sony MP3 players, no one knew. You know, if you saw someone on the tube or on the train, all you would see is their indistinguishable black earphones. You know, the MP3 player itself was in. The person's pocket he had no idea if it was sony or motorola what apple did so brilliantly was making a massive play of all their advertising focused on the bright white earphones all the chart advertising focused on that very very distinctive only person who did it so as soon as you saw white earphones you knew someone was listening to apple mm-hmm. they looked like they were the market leader long before they were and that set in this virtuous circle set and train this virtuous circle of social proof yeah so those lateral harnessings the lateral harnessing of these biases i think becomes really exciting when it's through the design or through the insinuation yeah so mm. you're stranded on an island yeah and you're allowed to take five biases with you or you're allowed to be aware of five biases so i'm going to ask you to choose your five favorite children Oh, okay, okay. Well, we've had the pratfall effect. Is that one of your top five? Is that? that, is that... that, would, be, that would be. Yeah, I'd, I'd be lying if it wasn't. It's the pratfall. I think I love it. Okay. This, yeah. Who's going to be? Who's going to be number two, and why? And let's go through it. Okay. So the second one, I probably have seen like price relativity. Okay. So this is the idea that consumers don't have a fixed conception of value. What's good value? You know, so I think in Rory Seven's words, there's no one walking around the shops thinking they're prepared to pay one pound per unit of happiness, whether <laughs> it's a coat or a pair of trainers. It'd just be too complex. Yeah. So what Daniel Kahneman talks about often, he says, look, when people have a complex problem, like, is this thing good value? Rather than try and weigh that up in a very complex way, they, re- they replace the complex calculation with a much simpler 
uh, calculation. A calculation that's almost as good, but much simpler. And the simpler calculation is, what did I pay for something similar in the past? If I'm now being asked to pay more, this new thing is bad value. If I'm now being asked to pay less, this new thing is great value. Now, that should interest marketers because it means that people's conception of value is not an absolute thing. It's a relative thing. It depends what your comparison set is. So if you can change the comparison set for your product, then um, you can change people's willingness to pay by orders of magnitude. Mm. Have you got the, an example? Have you, could you give us an example of that? A recent Probably not the biggest one, but a recent one would be, have you seen this like Seedlip non-alcoholic gin? No. No. <laughs> and when it's not on offer, it's 25 quid. Okay. Uh, and everything they do about it is, you know, the brand, the imagery, the bottle it comes in, the fact they call it a non-alcoholic spirit, it uh, compares it to other um, alcoholic drinks. So when you're comparing it with a gin, you know, 25 quid's expensive, but it's in line with an artisan gin. And you know, it sells reasonably well. But if you think about what that product is, it's essentially an adult cordial. Mm-hmm. You know, if you stuck next to Ribena, if that sold not on the gin aisle, but in the Ribena aisle, and yeah. there's no way on earth any right-minded consumer would pay more than a fiver. Mm-hmm. You know, but because people would suddenly be saying, well, okay, it's a bit fancy than Ribena, but the, you know, the two pounds would be their mm-hmm. comparison set. Mm-hmm. They might pay double. They're not mm-hmm. going to pay 10 times as much. Yeah. By changing the comparison set to gins, they change consumers' willingness to pay by orders of magnitude. You know, the, more form- the famous example, probably the, you know, the, the example that's made billions of pounds, though, along that Roy Sutherland often talks about, is, is an espresso. Now, his argument there is what they have brilliantly done by selling in pods, he's changed the comparison set because a pod gives you a cup size serving. And as soon as people think of cups of coffee, the comparison set with Nespresso is Starbucks and a flat white. So the 50 pence that Nespresso want for a Lungo pod of coffee looks mm-hmm. great value. Mm-hmm. It's £2.5 for a Starbucks flat white. If, and I reckon 99.9% of marketers would have done this, if they had launched in bags of coffee if they'd sold the Nespresso powder in like a big bag of coffee like Dow Egberts or mm-hmm. Cafe Direct how much do you reckon a four standard 474 gram bag of coffee would have cost well it's, you're going to be able to get a little bit over the top of what it is already right you're not going to be talking Starbucks prices well a if you if they sold 474 gram bags of coffee that would cost 60 pounds now there is no way on earth again oh any my God. <laughs> would go into Sainsbury's, push aside a £10 bag of Dow Egbert's away and take home a £60 bag of Nespresso. It'd feel like so wasteful, it'd feel morally wrong. Now, but that's not what they did. You know, the 50 pence for a pod feels like a great value compared to Starbucks. The £60 for a bag, which is exactly the same per gram price, that would have felt a rip-off because it would have been compared to a different collection of items. So that to me is one of the most fascinating biases because 
you can change people's willingness to pay. I mean, those examples are pretty, but you've changed people's willingness to pay by orders of magnitude about 10. Wow. You know, that's phenomenally. So this profitable. is where, this is where I, I'd never heard it before, but the first ever podcast that I heard Rory Sutherland, Rory, you may be listening. So I'm going to send this to you. I apologize for your ears just like burning so, so hard that they're coming off. But if you are listening and you haven't heard episode 49 with Rory Sutherland, it was at the start of the year and it was a force of nature. You got to go watch it. It'll be in the show notes below. Um, I remember that he was discussing about so many of these different elements. And I think that the fact there was nothing analogous in the two situations you've got, there's nothing that someone can use. What's analogous to alcohol-free gin? Well, when it's in the gin aisle, nothing. And what's analogous to Nespresso pod? Well, I, I can't work it out. No one probably actually knows how many grams are in a teaspoon of coffee that's instant coffee. Like, yeah, you'd, you'd go insane if you. I mean, people often use the word irrationality about some of these biases, but it's, it's a strange word to use because it would be insane to go into the supermarket and try and make all these calculations and weigh up all of these things and not just compare it to what's in front of you. You know, you'd spend your whole you'd spend a whole day in a supermarket if you if you try to make all these calculations. You'd have an existential crisis. <laughs> yes, yeah, you would. Which yeah. I which I often have in ASDA, um, but. Yeah, the, the Rory Sutherland point is the fact he talks, mm, he, he says yep. alchemy, right? And I think Ooh, yes, the yeah, alchemy pretty, relation yep. that he pulls out, the first ever time that I heard this used, and remembering I've done, I did a master's in international marketing at Newcastle University. Yep. I'd been at uni for five years. I've done advertising my entire life. Um, I, I'd never thought of it like this. But what he says is that advertising is a kind of alchemy because it allows you to create value creation literally out of nothing. So the Nespresso... Uh, change in price by the way that they have pitched themselves and the style in which they've put the product across. There's no carbon footprint. There's no increased labor. There's no, there's no cost of any kind outside of its ability to simply be a unique kind of offering. So you're able to create value from nothing. And that's where he gets the alchemy idea from, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, uh, an absolutely brilliant book. I think you're absolutely right. There's also a value in the, what people taste is not necessarily just the product itself. So if you're talking about an espresso or beer or uh, food, people taste what they expect to taste. So there's a whole series of experiments done by a slightly controversial professor called Brian Wansink, where a different story before or a different label to a product, to a food mm. creates a very different taste. So um, if you tell someone, uh, a wine is 50 quid. And I think this was Dan O'Reilly actually rather than uh, one sink. If you tell them a wine's 50 quid, they'll like it much more than the, exactly the same wine if they're told it's a fiver. Mm. Um, one sink did stuff around um, labelling. So you tell people a wine, exactly, again, exactly the same, everyone served the same wine. If they're told it's from uh, Dakota, North Dakota, they'll tell you it's awful. If they're told it's from California, they'll tell you it's lovely. Mm. If they describe a, uh, a soup with loads of fancy adjectives, then it's rated higher and people will pay more and uh, think it tastes better than if it's just described in very plain terms. So, you know, yes, people, you know, add, adding that thought and effort to the design, the advertising, the labeling, the packaging, it creates value in people's heads. And why is that any less valuable than the, uh, the enjoyment that's created by playing around with the, the, you know, the chemical and the f- physical, uh, physical makeup? Yeah. I agree. So we've got the pratfall effect. We've got what was the second cost relative? 
relativity. The price relativity. Price yeah, relativity. Price relativity. Uh, yeah. Who else? So we're on the we're on the island. Okay, we're, we on know, third, we're on third. We know these, how these are, to yeah. trip over, and we know to spill coffee on ourselves. <laughs> yeah. We yeah. know to make things unanalogous to other products, so that the customers yeah. don't know what's going on. What else is happening? Yeah. Uh, for different reasons, I would probably have uh, nine enders. <laughs> so <laughs> just okay. I mean, yeah. Okay. So yeah. so. Uh, how old are you, by any chance? 31. Ah, damn. Uh, we should have done this podcast. We should have done it in eight years' time. Uh, so Nine Enders is the idea that, from Adam Alter and Hal Hirschfield, that people whose age ends in nine are particularly likely to make big, major lifestyle decisions. <laughs> oh, my God. So it sound, I mean, when I, exactly. My reaction when I first read this was, this sounds it's hokum. Uh, and at first, I wasn't persuaded by their initial well what, what he initially talks about is well we proved this by running a huge global survey i think it's 40 odd thousand people and people uh were much more likely to agree with the statement uh, i've made a big lifestyle change in the last 12 months if their age ends in nine okay but there's all sorts of problems with claim data so that that's a little bit weak but what they then did was brilliant they looked at loads of observed data sets to try and test their hypothesis so they look at um, first-time marathon runners, and they're 48% more likely to do a marathon the first time when their age ends in nine. <laughs> they look at, uh, guess what? They look at uh, affairs websites. They look at Ashley Madison. <laughs> I mean, this this. I mean, it's not a great affairs website. They gave their eight million database of men to these researchers, and they found that men were 18% more likely to join this website when their age ends in nine. They even looked, and this gets a bit more depressing, they looked at um, American suicide data, and there is a small but statistically significant uplift in suicides when people's age ends in nine. Now, what they then argue, so it's a robust study because they're, they're prioritizing reserved data over claim data. They argue that this happens because people put, um, they don't treat all time as equal. Some moments are given disproportionate importance. So when people are approaching the turn of a decade, that has big cultural significance. So in that 12 months before, people are at least thinking, well, how's my life going? And a lot, loads of people think, well, it's absolutely fine. Don't make any changes. But there's a large enough proportion who think things are going poorly. They make these big radical changes. Mm. Now, part of the reason I take this to the desert island is I like this because it's practical. You know, 10 years ago, knowing that as an advertiser, well, what the hell do you do with it? Now, it is very, very simple. You know, loads of digital media owners catch people's birthday. It's very, very easy to target people. Mm. But the other reason, and this is probably why it makes it on the top five, I love it, is there's a really strong economic reason for using this bias like if you're a if you're the government trying to get people to stop smoking if you're a diet brand if you're a gym brand if you're probably a seller of luxury um convertibles you know targeting people whose agents in nine when they are uh, you know mulling over the direction of their life it's probably a very very personal time but the reason i love it from the economics of it is media when advertisers buy media space it's increasingly bought through an auction so in the milliseconds mm-hmm. before you see an ad, an auction's gone on and the winner gets to serve their ad. There, if, you are in an, if you are using the same data signals as every other brand, and most brands will default to income, you know, 1834s, ABC1s, 
if you're just buying on the same metrics as everyone else, well, when you're in a busy auction, you tend to overpay. What you need to do is isolate a factor that no one else is using, mm. like night enders, bid on that, and you're much more likely to get a bargain. So I think nine enders makes it because at first I was very doubtful. I love the creativity that Alter and Hirschfeld showed to test this point. And then I love the fact that it's both practical and there's some economics behind it. I can't get over the name. Yeah. I can't nine get enders. over the fact it's called nine enders. Yeah. Like, well, it was, it was discovered by academics, not marketers. Well, that's the maybe, thing. They maybe just they need to rebrand. Uh, like they're around other marketers. Yeah. Like, mate, we've come up with this thing. What do you think yeah. of, what do you just, like, hear me out, hear me out, just wait. What do we think of uh, as a name? It's nine enders. You'd be like, right, love the idea. <laughs> Great. Just change the title out and we're, and we're yeah. sweet. Yeah. We're sweet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, See, I remember I, back to our very first chat. I've got no right to talk to anyone about naming. Yeah, so, that's uh, true. That's very true. You got that wrong. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't called like Astro Tenders, though, was it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so we've got those. We've got nine enders. We've got uh, price, uh, cost, relativity, and we've got uh, the pratfall effect. What else is What else is in uh, on the on the island? The island. Well, I would have, and this is. It's related. So uh, the danger of claim data, I think, you know, and touching on that with um, uh, Nine Enders, <laughs> there is a lovely experiment by Adrian North, who was at the University of Leicester. And, um, and his experiment was around playing different music in the wine aisle of a supermarket. So some occasions he plays you know, stereotypically French music, accordion stuff. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he plays stereotypically German music brass bands and things. Mm-hmm. And then he monitors the proportion of wine sales. So he ignores all the other nations, just looks at French and German wine sales. Mm-hmm. When the French music plays, 77% of the wine from those two countries is French, 27% German. When the German music plays, 73% is German, 27% uh, 27% French. So the, 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 the nationality being bought Swayed massively because of this small environmental cue. So part of it, you know, he's he, he's experiment is mainly about the music and the importance of these environmental cues. But what's interesting from another perspective is what he does next. As people are leaving the supermarket, he stops them and he says, uh, "Did you buy any wine? Did you buy any French or German wine?" And then if they've said yes to both those questions, he says, well, why did you buy that wine? And only 2% of people say they bought the wine because of the music. And even when he asks them directly, even when he says, look, did, did the music influence you? 86% of people deny flat out the music had any effect at all. <laughs> now that, I think if you're a marketer, if you ta- actually, if you change one thing from this podcast, it should be based on that experiment, which is be very, very careful about taking customers' claims at face value. You know, because if you ran that test and then, are, you know, or, or you were thinking about that running that test and did what most marketers do, which is survey people and then, you know, listen to the survey results. If you went and said, would the music, changing the music influence you? Everyone says no, you don't bother doing it. So if you're a marketer, be very sceptical about survey results, focus groups, directly asking people, and certainly be sceptical about taking those claims at face value. And instead, 
I would say the thing to learn from psychology is this methodology of not listening to claims, but setting up these test and control experiments. Mm -hmm. A naturalistic um, uh, experiment, you know, in the wine aisle, for example, if you're a wine brand, keep everything the same except for one variable, the music, and then any difference in sales or whatever behavior you want, you attribute back to that uh, changed variable. That's a far better way unearthing genuine motivations daniel kahneman talks about this a lot that we don't we don't know our own biases right yeah. we, don't, we, we haven't got a clue about our own motivations for doing particular things um you mentioned about alcohol in supermarkets i haven't seen this in the uk but i was recently in america and in america they have bars from like a pub not that far behind the fruit and veg aisle so you hit fruit and veg, then you hit a bar, and then yeah. you hit, like, bread. Yeah. And the number of dads that I'd seen that were there who'd obviously said to their partners, right, don't worry, don't worry, darling, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, take, the kids, I'll take the kids for this one. Are you, sure? yeah. Are you sure you've worked all week? No, 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 don't worry, don't worry. And yeah. then one of the, one of the trolleys, <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. this trolley, right, and it's double child seat thing yeah. at the front, Cup holder at the back. Nice, nice. <laughs> this dad just going around with an IPA. He's got like a yeah. lovely brew dog or like yeah. a blue moon or something yeah. like that. And he's just sipping away, obviously throwing loads of stuff in he doesn't need. Like he's just loosened his spending muscles a little bit. Yeah, and he's, yeah, like, yeah. he's, he's yeah. got like, f- like loads of fajita mix and things he's never going to use. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it was great. Yeah. Sod, sod removing the, uh, the, the pound signs, the dollar signs from a menu. He's getting a bit Get, yeah, giving pissed. people. Two pints of IPA, that'll get them price insensitive. Yeah. You know, the other bit, and I can't, I think it was a Paco Underhill, I think that might be his name. Apologies, I've got, I've got that wrong. But he wrote a book, and I, th- I think it's there that I first read, and it might be worth double checking this one to make sure it's true. But the reason why uh, supermarkets have, because you mentioned even in that example that the fruit and veg comes first, mm. which is completely impractical if you think about it. If you go, if the first thing you see is delicate, soft, squidgy fruit and veg, mm. the last place you want that is the bottom of your yep. trolley when all the heavy stuff's going to go in front. But there is an idea in psychology called moral licensing, which is if we do something good, you know, ethically right, virtuous, uh, like going to the gym, uh, having some vitamins, we often overcompensate. So you get people feeling like they've been very healthy with a fruit and veg. That might be the reason for having that right in the beginning. Mm. So then compensate with biscuits and treats and whatever else. So there's there's an awful lot of psychology that goes into the design of supermarkets, right? With shelf height and the different ways that prices are displayed. I, I seem to remember one of the very few things that I can remember from my degree, which I paid 27 grand for, um, is yeah, is uh, a map about how customers typically walk down aisles. And it's similar to if you were to take a ping pong ball or a bowling ball, put the guardrails up and throw it at an angle. Yeah, and it, yeah. it, you, you would see just this angle that's almost the angle of attack is the angle of exit. And people yeah, yeah. dink, dink. Dink, and they just go the way all the way up. I, rem- I remember seeing that. Now it was first off, I, it was at Newcastle University's marketing department, and I'm, I'm I'm unsure how many accolades they've got, so it might have been wrong. Um, but 
that I, I'm I'm fascinated with the design of supermarkets, and I often yeah, try it's... and find myself like catching like, oh, what are what are they doing this week? Like I bought I bought recently purchased a 867 gram bag of Crave cereal just because I was like, that's the largest bag of Crave cereal I've <laughs> yeah, ever yeah, seen in my life. Yeah, I've got to yeah. buy it. Well, <laughs> inside of that, that bag of away. inside of that yeah, bag yeah. of Crave Crave cereal is just. <laughs> multiples of smaller bags of Crave cereal that I've had before. There's nothing unique yeah, yeah, yeah. in that. I don't even think it was that cheap. Like, I just like, oh, look at that. Uh, and uh, then, well, I it, mean, I, I have heard people arguing that uh, one of the reasons, it, it's easier to change the size of your products than put the price up. So if you reduce the size of your crisps or your sweets, people are less likely to stop buying you than if you put up the price for the same uh-huh. Or if it's a massive bag, mm. well, then again, what do you compare it to? You know, I know, you know, for me, crisp is my weakness. <laughs> a 100 gram bag, you know, I'm reckoning that should be about a pound, pound 50. If it's 150, 75, you know, suddenly my benchmark's out, out the window. Uh, yeah, well, I guess when Red Bull first launched, right, they had this oh, weird absolutely. can, oddly yeah. sized can. Is it a 200? 150, yeah, but if it's thin cylindrical, again, it's breaking that link with Coca-Cola. Yeah, you've got the 330, which yeah, is the Coca-Cola yeah, stubby, yeah, yeah. and then you'd have like a, a monster equivalent, which is like a pint or something. That's like, no, yeah. like a 467 or something like that. But I think monster came much later. It was, yeah, yeah. yeah. So once that link with comparing it with soft drinks is broken, then you can gradually drift into it. It's mm. like craft beer. When craft beer launched, you never, ever saw... Uh, or I certainly never saw a craft beer selling in a 440 mil can because the link, it would have been too obvious that what they want four pounds. I can get a John <laughs> six pence. So they, so paradoxically they make it smaller to be able to sell for more. Yes. Now, very occasionally you do see 440 mil cans, but that's because I think they've set up craft beer as being a different category, different price expectations yeah. than from real ale. Yeah, I do. I, I get that completely. One of the interesting things I wonder about, you were talking about how you can manipulate your GP on a product by uh, lowering the price, which means, uh, sorry, lowering the volume, which means you've got less product inside of that. Now, yeah. a number of bar and club owners from around the country will know this problem, which is that something like Carlsberg, sorry, Carlsberg, but Carlsberg's about the cheapest main beer that you can buy from yeah. uh, from a brewery with a, a reputable name. Um, and more than 50% of the cost of the beer comes from the bottle that it arrived in, I think. Bloody hell. So if yeah. you were to reduce the size of the bottle, all that you would be concerned with is using, or you would be equally concerned with using less glass yeah. as you would be for using less beer. Yeah. Which is hilarious. Also, on a side point, I have managed to so Carlsberg, like I get I get spat on for drinking Carlsberg, right? Like when I don't drink at the moment, but when I do drink, I tend to drink Carlsberg. And this is this weird artifact of years of working in student club nights where if I wanted to get the cheapest beer would always be Carlsberg. And yeah. if the if the club manager was going to give us a couple of beers while we were cashing up at the end, he'd always bring in obviously the stuff that it doesn't really like it's forty seven pence a unit or something plus that. Yeah. Like, well, I don't yeah. care about giving giving you like two quids worth of Carlsberg for you and the couple of the lads that are cashing the till at the end of the night. Yeah. But oddly, over time, I've actually developed like a, a a weird like Pavlov's dog type thing. I'm like end of the night need a Carlsberg, and now yeah. that's even expanded itself out to the point where it's like I'm out on a night. 
want a Carlsberg. And everyone else will be like getting a Corona or getting something like Copperberg or something. I'm like, yeah. have you got any Carlsberg at the back, please? And like, what are you drinking yeah. that for? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. I've, I've been promoting for like 13 years. Yeah. Leave me alone. Well, if anyone takes the mick, uh, and people can be strangely snobby about, I think, coffee and beer at the moment. Uh, I did a, we did a taste test. And I think the, re- the main reason we did the taste test, I think we, we were testing the effect of like the serving on the taste. Mm. So headline figure was for, you know, if you get it in a plastic glass, you think it's awful, unbranded, it's a bit better. Same, this is the same liquid. Uh, branded glass, it rates nicer. But one of the things we did was we gave, we kind of found blokes between 18 and 30, gave them, found out whether they were Foster's Carlsberg or Carling drinkers. Mm-hmm. And some people would be quite, you know, passionate about one of them and mm-hmm. talk very dismissive about the other two. Mm-hmm. And then we gave them a blind taste test of the three beers. And people were worse than chance at picking out their supposedly uh, uh, favourite beer. beer. So, yeah, so maybe put some cash on that. Next time, one of your corona-drinking friends uh, mocks Carlsberg. I'll, I'll see if he can pick it out of a, 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 a line-up. Taste test. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Clever, clever yeah, little yeah, bastard. Yeah, yeah. Um, so did we, get, did we get number four? Did we get number four? That's number four, I think. Four was claim data. Yes. Number five, the final one. Yep. And this is more for, it's my favourite story for how psychologists came up with the idea and it's the if you heard of the dunning kruger yes. effect yeah ah, okay so for the listeners uh, it'll be worth explaining it yeah yeah so david dunning justin kruger is that right? david dunning, that's right. yeah to i think psychologists at cornell they're reading a local paper and they come across the story of macarthur wheeler so macarthur wheeler has just been jailed for 20 years for committing two bank robberies so in a single day, he'd robbed two banks. Mm. The time he drove home, uh, the police are waiting for him and they arrest him. And the reason that they caught him so quickly was that uh, unlike most burglar, uh, bank robbers, he didn't bother covering his face with a balaclava. He turned up at the bank and the only precaution he'd taken was he'd smeared his face with lemon juice because his mate had told him that lemon juice is what's you know, you make invisible ink out of. So therefore, if you put the juice on your face, uh, the security cameras won't be able to pick you up. And supposedly, he tried, you know, because he's not a complete idiot, he, he's a bit, uh, he try he, he tests this theory, he takes a selfie of himself, but he manages to kind of shoot the wall behind him because he's not angled right. Mm. And so he's, he's got himself, fucking he's lemon in his eyes, that's why. <laughs> yeah, he's covered yeah, yeah, his yeah, face yeah. in lemon. So, they, uh, Dunning and Kruger read about this and they think, well, wait a minute. There is a massive vested interest in this person knowing their abilities accurately. So how can they be so deluded about their ability to rob a bank and get away with it? And they began to wonder, is this, although that, of course, is a very, very extreme version, is that typical of other people? So they begin by testing people. They give them grammar tests. I think logic tests, maths tests, get them to do these tests, note down where they've appeared from, you know, in, you know let's say they get 100 people to do it, what uh, percentage they've, uh, you know, they're ranked as, and then they get the people to estimate where they've appeared. Now, in general, people are overconfident. They think they're better than average. 
and how everyone can't be better than average. But the key <laughs> for why it became known as the Dunning-Krug effect rather than just the bias of overconfidence was uh, they noted that people who were experts sometimes underestimated their abilities when people were novices and pretty darn awful they were more more like they there was a bigger kind of um overestimate of their abilities so it's a kind of idea that when you're really bad at something you really do overestimate how good you are so it became known as the dunning-kruger effect now i think there's loads of fascinating implications for marketers about overconfidence that too often great campaigns are jettisoned too early because people believe well i did a brilliant campaign you know 10 years ago that's running out of juice now i'm going to do a Mm. another great one they overestimate their ability but i think the main reason that would make it to the desert island is the, the macarthur wheeler story for me i think is the i, know, I didn't know about the lemon juice thing yeah. it's yeah. so good yeah it's weird isn't it because it's like the more you know the more you know you don't know uh, what is it the valley of the valley of ignorance or something and then the climb of of learning yeah um there's a there's, back to nine enders that doesn't sound like a terminology some academics came up with maybe that's been the you know yeah the whole thing doesn't sound like that so we're going to we're going to finish up shortly richard have you got any any bits that you've seen recently have you got one more little anecdote or one more little thing that you've got jotted down that you think would be a good way to finish finish off the episode today um the i think i think the best example i've seen recently uh and maybe we'll have to stick an image up here because my description is not going to be will, will, will <laughs> yeah, video, yeah. 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 Uh, I saw I can't remember who did it unfortunately and I do like to try and credit people because it's not fair to uh, not mention but there was a wonderful tweet recently where someone had taken a photo um, of a sign in a, in, a, in a little corner shop and it essentially said Jurex condoms five dollars Mm. Oh, sorry trojan condoms five dollars uh huggies twenty two dollars i think that's the <laughs> usage of price relativity i've ever seen uh don't compare yourself to jurex compare yourself to huggies and suddenly uh, you look look much cheaper you got the downstream I'll implications I'll, 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 I'll take that one out and that's good and there's a there's a i saw recently on your twitter the one about um beware pickpockets operate in this area so paul craven um does this wonderful talk at nunchstock where he said look people assume communications work rationally so you put up a sign saying beware pickpockets operate in this area surely we've now communicated the information this is a dangerous area um pickpocking rates drop what he says is that that actually tends to backfire because when people see that sign their automatic responses without thinking to straight away, you know, tap their pockets to make all sure of the valuable w- areas of their body. If you're a pickpocket. What are you going to do? You're going to stand <laughs> by that side. <laughs> hit that side. Oh, thank you very much. You've just identified where your wallet is. I'll be having that. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. I recently went to Barcelona and one of the guys that I was with fell asleep in Barcelona train station after a bit of a heavy night. Now, Barcelona is the pickpocket capital of Europe. Apparently I didn't know, but he found that out when he woke up to notice his phone wallet and shoes had been taken <laughs> shoes that's taken true. from his feet that's just a master pickpocket <laughs> uh, ability. it's just too easy um on that actually another great uh advert or, or, or nudge i saw and this one was from ogilvy 
they ran a campaign warning people about pickpockets where they used ex-pickpockets who'd kind of seen the light and they had a campaign called put pockets so they got the pickpocket to drop a little flyer in people's pockets saying well i it was easy enough for me to put this in your pocket i could have helped myself if i wanted to be much more careful and i love that as a way of tell people they are in danger you know kind of show them that's much much more powerful because you know going back to dunning kruger we're all you know all all that kind of generalized finding of overconfidence Mm. if you say you know this area is danger for pickpockets or or you know you need to be more careful with your valuables most people think well it's not going to happen to me or happen to those other idiots it's one of those uh it's a great it's one of those things like the ethical hackers you know, they get the ethical hackers to come on board and hack into a company yeah. on behalf of the company. And it's like, oh, well, we've identified the hole in your particular system. This is the way that we go in. I want to know what a ethical pickpocketer gets paid. <laughs> yeah. And does yeah. he get paid based on the number of flyers that he gives out? Because that really should be. And it's like, oh, well, I gave I gave this to a really rich guy. And I know for a fact that that Rolex is worth five grand. So I, re- I need I need big money for him, and I need big money for that woman with the Le Vuitton purse. And yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't performance-based the- pay for the ethical pickpocketers. Ethical pickpockets. They'll have a union yeah. soon. They'll have a union. Yeah. Well, Richard, today's been awesome, man. Thank you oh, so you. much. Um, where can everyone find you online? I absolutely love your Twitter. What what should they follow you at? So at R Shotten, R S H. Oh, I forgot my bloody son. <laughs> R-S-H-O-T-T-O-N. And the book I wrote, which is all about applying behavioral science to advertising, is called The Choice Factory. Fantastic. And then the third thing I've done, which might be of interest, is I've just created a online training course. Um, With 42 which courses. Is about, yeah, that's exa- yeah, exactly one. So Rory Southern's done one about applying behavioral science or about behavioral science in general. I've done one specifically on applying behavioral science to advertising. Wow. So links to all of that will be in the show notes below if you want to follow Richard on, on Twitter. He's very active. And it's just like when I log on now, I've been following you maybe for a week, just over a week, something like that. When I log on, it's just at the top of my feed. I only followed 68 people. So it's like the, it's a, a good chunk. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, a real mark of something for you to get in there. And uh, I just go on and I'm like, it's always media based. There was a recent story about Julius Caesar about, I'll tell you what, why don't we finish with the story oh, about Julius yeah. Caesar? Can you remember that? Yes, yes. Uh, so this is from a brilliant book by actually an, an amazing uh, advertiser kind of in his heyday, 70s, 80s, 90s, called Dave Schrott. And he's written a lovely book called Creative Blindness. And he talks about um, Julius Caesar. So age 23, Julius Caesar is captured by some pirates and they want to uh, ask for 20 units of silver and julius caesar says no 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 hang on don't ask for 20 i'm worth far more than that ask for 50 and this is the (laughs) highest amount that any um you know politician general whatever has been ransomed for so all of a sudden people are like god this caesar man must be amazing you know if he's being asked for uh you know the pirates reckon he's worth that much and in this blog that i kind of photoed a snippet from from dave trot he essentially argues that caesar invented the idea you know a thousand years before of the, the the veblen effect and that's the idea we touched on with stella that people assume something that is expensive must be high quality 
So Caesar's working on the idea that, well, you know, if I go out and can say that I had, you know, the highest ransom ever, you know, people are going to assume I must be an amazing general and that's going to set off my political career. Despite the <laughs> fact that he came up with the prize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure he kind of he didn't bother mentioning that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other story. This is someone. When I I love the thing about Twitter is someone, uh, and actually, I, I came came back and sent me a link to uh, a longer article about Caesar, and it mentioned that when Caesar was released, he then raised, uh, you know, a, a kind of armed party, went back and found the pirates who were still sitting around the same islands, caught them. And then had them all executed. So, I mean, you know, you want to be. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a man that, uh, yeah, he probably shouldn't have messed with for a few reasons, not just his marketing now. Julius Caesar's a bad motherfucker, isn't he? Like, he's going <laughs> to. He's going to. His autobiography. Yeah, yeah. he's going to shaft you with behavioral science. Yeah. Then, then he's going to make himself really well known and super popular. Then he's going to come back, he's going to kill you. Yeah, you, oh, you do not mess with Julius Caesar. Richard, today's been fantastic, man. Everybody who is listening, please go and follow Richard on, on Twitter. He's absolutely fascinating. Any of the points that have come up that you've been interested in, feel free to give me a message wherever you follow me, at Chris Willex or Richard on Twitter, and we'll be more than happy to start the discussion yet again over the interwebs. Richard, yeah. thanks so much <laughs> for your time, man. Cheers, Chris. Thanks a lot.